Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today on Tesseract Podcast. I think it's going to be a unique episode. Um, we've never had anyone from the Air War College here. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. So how did you end up at the Air War College and being a professor and getting so interested in you know, being an aviation enthusiast and military history? Well, it all started as long ago as I can remember. I like to say that I've been studying the Marine Corps my whole life because uh, one of my earliest memories is realizing that there was such a thing as the Marine Corps and my dad had served in it. And he used to say, I was about to be enlisted into the Army during Vietnam, I was about to be, or I was about to be drafted, actually. And he said the Army wasn't tough enough for him, and so he had to go into the Marine Corps. So you know, the question of, well, why did he think the Marine Corps was tough and the Army wasn't? Things like that uh, always um, intrigued me. There's also my dad's very deep sense of discipline and um, duty. And so I decided that I wanted to study the Marine Corps. And when I went into the archives for the first time, I was reading about the Mexican-American War. And I'll try to cut this short just because I know everyone wants to hear about the Air Force more than the Marine Corps. But uh, there I was reading about the Marines in the Mexican-American War, and they didn't seem to be anything like the Marines that everyone knows so well today. They even called themselves soldiers. And so that became my my project. You know, what, how, how did the few become the proud? And then I somehow, um, you know, life throws you paths and curveballs that you never anticipated. I never thought I would teach air power. But it turns out that I actually find it a lot more intellectually interesting than studying land power. And I love the sort of the theory and the the ideas that underpin air power. So I've really enjoyed my almost seven years down at Maxwell now. Let's uh let's start digging. Uh, well, let's take a a, a deep dive right into our current state as an Air Force. Accelerate, change, or lose has been around for the last couple of years. Um, and despite this entire history of us being full throttle in change and being thought leaders in technology, and frankly, being one of the most innovative organizations that the world has ever seen for large periods of time. Well, I think that the first thing is that you mentioned innovation, you mentioned technology. And I think that when the Air Force thinks about change, it tends to gravitate towards stuff. And I think that if we took a huge step back and thought more about the ideas of what we're trying to do, rather than the stuff that we need to do it, that it would put us in a better spot. And it seems to me that ever since we sort of pivoted to China, once we got out of the global war on terror and tried to focus on potential challenges with China, 
that we realized we were behind in stuff. And then we began, and this is not just the Air Force, I think it's DOD writ large, began running around like chickens without our heads on and chasing different technologies. There would be like a technology of the year. Um, for example, hypersonics is one of them. And so I think that rather than prioritize I, um, the tools that we need, that we need to be asking the questions that we need to solve. For example, how do we get access? And always thinking about the questions that we need to be pursuing helps us to get around sort of chasing different tools. There's also the idea of um, that I think could be problematic, but I'm not sure um, how much this is true or not, but there's the idea of just change for change's sake. Um, and so sometimes if it comes down from on high that we need lots of change, we, we see lots of change emanating up from the tactical level, but to what end, what is the strategic vision that we're pursuing? And one of the, the interesting case studies of failure of innovation in my, if you think about the different levels of war, arguably is helicopters in Vietnam. Helicopters operationally and tactically were amazing um, contributors to the Army's efforts in Vietnam. However, some have argued that at the strategic level, they were a disaster because they enabled a strategy that, that let us avoid gaining control on the ground and just sort of skipping around. And so that was very problematic, arguably, for trying to win a counterinsurgency fight. So you can have all the change in the world, but that doesn't mean that it's actually going to be the right change if you're not overarchingly setting out a strategy into which these tactical level um, innovations and ad adaptations should go. Uh, and, and then I think that also leads us into the differences between innovation and adaptation. And we, I think, use them often as synonyms in the Air Force. And I think it's useful uh, to look at them along a sliding scale of innovation being something very, very um, unique and very, very novel, where adaptation is more of an evolutionary process. But in, still, even then, if you think about, for example, a nuclear bomb, in many ways, that is very innovative. It has a huge um, amount of destruction. On the other hand, it's also you can look at it as adaptation because it's just a bomb. Uh, so you always have to sort of think about the, that sliding scale and very few things are truly innovative, um, which would lead me to one more point. And that's if you look at, you know, anything about air power since Operation Desert Storm, you are more likely than not to find the word revolutionary thrown in. And I guess historians like to rain on everyone's parade and be like, there's nothing new under the sun, guys calm down. But continually from Operation Desert Storm till today, any air power book you pick up, this is so revolutionary, this is so revolutionary, this is so revolutionary. Guys, calm down. In fact, in many ways, the same things that we are doing with air power since today, we've been doing since World War I. So it's really easy to get caught up in the technological change and miss the huge continuities in air power development. Yeah, I'd like to touch on your first piece with the technical focus in the Air Force. That's something that I've touched on on quite a few podcasts recently. Um, and I think it's a byproduct of the bureaucracy uh, and the bureaucratic mechanisms that have existed over the last 30, 40, 50 years, or at least actually throughout the 
just the existence of the military industrial complex period, um, where we have predictable systems. Um, we have, um, uh, we'd like to quantify our, um, our, not only our successes, but we like to quantify, you know, what we are doing with X amount of dollars and X amount of vehicles. Um, we, we find ourselves also specifically as an air power entity focused on in, in and I've mentioned this book also in, in other podcasts, but I just like to double and triple and quadruple tap it, the culture of military organizations, um, where it dives into, hey, uh, air power leaders love to lean on the fact that they can measure the tonnage that, you know, of, of bombs that was dropped. They, they love to measure the uh, mission capable rate of aircraft. Uh, they love to measure the endless amount of metrics that that we can as an air power entity, yet we have traditionally failed to measure the you know culture and and health of of airmen, right? And the true readiness of 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 the individual warfighter, at least you know, when it comes to uh technically focused branches of service like the Navy or the Air Force, uh, where the Army and the Marine Corps don't necessarily have that problem as much because that soldier or that marine is the weapon system right um so those are some of my uh those have been my thoughts on that as i've reflected over the last couple of years um but uh to dive into your your definitions of innovation and adaptation um and i find it that there's like a like there's a culminating point where uh uh, a product or a solution or a process hits and that line isn't clear um but as soon as it meets that mark it's considered an innovation right like i was think i was reading uh rule the waves um and have you read rule the waves yet I have not great book on sea power and it talks about connex boxes and how connex boxes were an innovation well a connex box is just a box right it's just a box but it's a bigger box that is modular and is now adaptable to fit on not only ships, but 18 wheelers. And it has truly revolutionized the way that we've shipped products. But at the end of the day, it's just a box. Uh, I think that that example that you gave of the context boxes really goes along with sort of what I've been thinking about today uh, as I've been trying to think what I wanted to say today. And, and it goes again to my ideas and tools that the reason that the Connex box was so successful and so important was because it wasn't that it was a new box. It was that you were thinking of about a box differently and bringing together two or maybe even more different areas of purpose and melding them together to make it seamless. And so I think that that's where creativity so often occurs. And that's why it's so good for people to get out of their own domains and think about other domains or read about a period of history that's totally, I mean, if you're an airman, read about like ancient Greek hoplite warfare. I mean, just different different things to, to spark new ideas. And that's where some some really creative magic that can come that can allow some um, change to occur in maybe non-traditional ways when we're just thinking about, okay, how are we going to make the pilot experience, you know, 
better or faster. And, and that seems to be a lot of what is getting the attention in accelerating change. Mm -hmm. So speak, speaking of history, what is your favorite case study in the evolution and innovation and adaptation in the military? Not, I mean, this doesn't have to be air power history. This can be any part of history. There's so many answers that I could give. I always like the beginnings of things when it's everything is just beginning. Um, before I decided to study war, I actually thought about going to seminary and studying church history. And I was interested in the early church, the first church. Um, and I find myself drawn to the beginning of air power history. I think that uh, I guess as a, as a historian, what I increasingly realize, though, is that when we think about our early history, we read so much of World War II backwards into our early history that it can be uh, problematic in ways. And then that poses a problem for me as a historian who's more of an applied historian now that I um, I'm in the PME world about like how much how much do you balance sort of the the breadth of study and the width of study to get um, historical mindedness in military officers in a way that's meaningful and that could, that can take us down our our PME my going continually go back to my my PME trail so we may not want to do that um, but I I think it is a, a fascinating period when you look at it outside of how we know the story turned out over the skies of Germany and Japan. I forgot which historian it was. I think it was Richard Overy. He talked about how the, uh, the reason we gravitate to World War II is because it's such a clear picture of good and evil. And it's really the last time that we've had a conflict that We've had like we've had the moral high ground in uh, in the clearest sense, right? You know, we are defeating nations that are exterminating you know millions of people um, simply because of um, what they believe in, right? Um, so, as historians, it's easy to look at, it's easy to study, and um, I mean that's why you see that not just you know uh, you know my bookshelves. I mean, I, I say that in my as I look at my my shelves over here in my World War II section, it's probably the biggest biggest part of my library, right? Um, but how do we diversify that? Our course has recently gone through, um, I'm the course director of the Air Power Strategy and Operations course, which is an old course that through tons of updates over the summer for this year, it is very new in terms of the whole banner of accelerate change or lose. One of the critiques that we had from outsiders was that our course used to be the World War II course. Now, I don't agree with that, um, but that was the critique. My counter argument to those who say that World War II is not worth studying, I understand that um, if we do, and I hope we don't get into a peer-on-peer -peer conflict, that what if it turns into something like World War III, it would not be replicating World War II that we can't just go back and fight World War II again, that's not gonna happen. However, 
at a deeper level, what's so valuable about World War II is that it wasn't just a conventional war with these great battles on the battlefield. There were so many varieties of air power. There's so many different applications of it that that's why I think World War II is still so very valuable. Also, another war similar to that is the Vietnam War. Huge breadth of air power application. I mean, going back to World War II, so many theaters from mobility to strategic bombing um, or strategic attack or whatever you want to call it to more tactical air power, just something that's hard to really, um, you just can't can't skip World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that there's so many um, amazing case studies when you look at the interwar period um, with the with the United States Army and then, you know, with the Air Corps. And then also uh, throughout the conflict, as you look at um, the way, you know, the Marine Corps was able to adapt to amphibious warfare, the way uh, an interesting tiny vignette with the story of sonar that was actually and um not necessarily invented, but discovered by a young petty officer um, that, that wasn't done by a scientist, right? Um, and then also with, um, uh, when I was talking to uh, General Barno and uh, uh, Dr. Bensahel about the, the rhino tanks in Normandy, that was done by, uh, you know, a, a sergeant that just challenge, you know, challenged the status quo and, and made change possible. Uh, so there, there are a lot of great, great little tidbits there to, to pull from. Um, but when we look at our history as um, uh, as an air power entity in our heritage, what do you think is the most important thing that we should reflect on? Because as an airman, sometimes I feel like our heritage is lost because we're looking so far forward and we're always looking at the next technology and the, and the next big thing, as you mentioned earlier. So what do you think we should reflect on? The first thing that I struggle um, with, I think, at Air Command and South College is that students may, and I'm not sure, but I have the sense that they think that history and heritage are synonymous. And I think there are critical differences between the two. I think that they come to ACSC and they expect that we are going to give them heritage and instead we give them history. And it's very hard for them to swallow because they're so different and they serve different purposes. So let me take a step back and define them for how I see them. I see heritage as the stories that we tell about uh, members in past members in our institution that we look up to, the sort of the, the good um, motivation stories that help instill identity and a sense of belonging in people. That has a very important purpose in motivation and, and things like that. However, history looks at the past from the exact opposite way. It's very critical. It takes those same leaders and shows all their warts, all their skeletons, all their, their potential mistakes. And so you really have to be, uh, that's one thing that, that I think is very important for the Air Force to understand, especially when they get to PME and they, and they may be confused that we are not here to tell feel-good cheerleading stories about the Air Force. We are here to be critical so that we can learn sort of the foundational ideas so that we don't make mistakes. Um, so in terms of Air Force history, I, I think one of the 
the interesting things that comes out of World War One is that we really go down the strategic bombing route. I don't think that air, early airmen got air power right, but I also don't think that early soldiers would have gotten air power more correct. Both went too far towards sort of a land-centric view of, of air power by the army and too independent of a um, air view by airmen. And there was a, a middle ground that needed to be explored more fully. However, uh, counter arguments, you know, it's the Great Depression, there's only so um, much you can do. And then really for the next couple of decades, all the way through Vietnam, uh, early airmen, you know, continued to be too independently minded, tended to be too extreme. Finally, after the Vietnam War, the airmen swung the other way in many ways with the rise of the fighter generals and we became too tactical we became too focused too um, focused on land-centric air power arguably and so we just kind of swung from one direction back to the other um so today i think always trying to figure out that balance between what uh more independent missions supporting the joint fight I want to stress the independent missions support the joint fight. They aren't separate to it versus more narrow traditional um, support is a, a difficult uh, balance to strike, as well as also the balance, and it's hard because air power history still doesn't have this right, the balance between sort of kinetic bomb dropping and non-kinetic uses of air power, which are um, have been some of the most successful uses of air power in history, but everyone tends to sort of gravitate towards the kinetic and we do, that's partly just because we don't have enough good writing about that area, the, those areas yet. Mm -hmm. uh, just to to touch back on, uh, you talked about how essentially we're, we get in our own way, right? And, you know, looking at the years of, um, of Billy Mitchell and how much of a maverick he was to really make air power top of mind of of everybody um or at least you know national security practitioners and you know in the interwar period and then obviously like late world war one but um williamson murray highlighted something uh in i forgot which book it was but he talked about how the air tactical school actually stifled uh innovation in ways because if you weren't in that camp and if you didn't think exactly like them, then you were, you were, you know, shunned. Like you were, you know, you were out of the club. And I, I just find that dichotomy so interesting because, you know, you're, you're talking about the air tactical school, which is, uh, you know, trying to be forward thinking and they think that they have the next evolution of warfare, right? And they, and a lot of the things that they did envision, yeah, they, you know, some of it did come to fruition, right? Um, but obviously it wasn't 100%. Uh, and they thought that they were being um, those forward thinkers. But at the same time, they were not open to any other thoughts. Uh, and, and, and to your point, you know, military mavericks have had that same type of mentality, you know, over the decades, you know, and then maybe that works to their benefit and maybe that works to their detriment. But one of my favorite individuals in Air Force history uh, 
and he is underrated and not talked about enough in Air Force circles is John Boyd. Well, I, I always go back to Sun Tzu and probably it's mistranslated, but you know, if you just know your enemy, then you'll you'll be you'll be fine. And it's really, really, really hard to know your enemy, even in say like Operation Allied Force, where uh, Wesley Clark had met Milosevic. Still, we don't even to this day really know why um, that coercion worked. And so even in our best, most recent case studies, we still have a giant, giant question mark. And that really goes to the unpredictability of human nature, which goes back to your differentiation between sort of how we quantify versus how we qualify, uh, which is a is a, a hard problem for the Air Force because we just can't always see our our progress like the army can if it's sort of a, a nice neat linear battlefield mm -hmm. and you know speaking of of sun Tzu, um i we when we look at the pla's doctrine and we we look at how you know uh the indo-pacom theater is evolving and elevating in and to be top of mind for everybody in the national security space. Uh, the PLA draws back to the Gulf War, right? And, and that's been pretty well cited that that was like their aha moment, that this is the future um, of conflict. And, and so taking, you know, our, our thought leadership and in, in innovation, you know, in our, and our thoughts on innovation, um, and then molding that with um, they're, you know, leaning in, well, leaning into Sun Tzu, obviously. Um, and then, uh, translating that into unrestricted warfare, um, which I'm sure you've read outstanding, you know, outstanding book, no excuse not to read it. It's this big, right? <laughs> it's super tiny. Um, and it, and how do we see ourselves in, you know, in the future? Um, what do you see the, um, you know, understanding the past gives us a good picture of what the future is going to look like, or at least, you know, the, the history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, uh, as historians like to say, um, can you paint a picture of what you think the future of air power looks like? I think that it will be that that balance between continuity and change where the, the the most fundamental ideas of of military history will continue to predominate uh, as you get down towards the tactical that that you will see more change that the basic um, roles and missions of air power will be similar to what they have been in the past. I am curious the extent to which the Chinese um, will copy us in some areas and depart from our practices in other ways. Uh, I I know it's a buzzword, but sort of like what what will they be thinking out of the box? How the the one of the questions that I that I think is is important to consider is how symmetrically um they might seek to be how asymmetrically they may seek to be some of the challenges in um developing some technology ahead of us and so then we possibly 
get caught making uh, costly decisions in pursuing technology, certain pieces of te technology that we may not um, may not be a wise and sound investment. I tend to think that if you just read Clausewitz and get the basic ideas and you study air power history, that you basically have the, the fundamentals, right? And the fundamentals are, are the most important thing. Um, I, I think that you can't predict the future at all, um, but you can kind of guess at it. But there's a lot of great work um, that comes out about, you know, how you're going to guess wrong. And so once you get into wartime, you know, the, the race to, to learn the, the lessons first, to um, let those be decentralized, and this comes from Michael Hunsecker's Dying to Learn, be decentralized in testing on the battlefield, uh, then brought in and tested by the most rigorous thinkers that you have in your institution, and then centralized in terms of getting disseminating them back out to the institution. I don't know how well the Air Force is suited for that. I think that the the having our doctrine at, at Air University and our sort of TTPs and, and the weapons school out at Nellis causes a, a break in our sort of intellectual holism, for, for lack of a word that I don't like. I think that we put TTPs on a pedestal and we kind of laugh at our doctrine and I don't think that that's healthy for an institution. Um, so those are some, some <laughs> a bunch of random ideas put together. No, I love it. No, I love it because uh, in, in the conversation, you know, to, to, to draw back to uh, the adaptability conversation I had yesterday, when when we think about the foundation of of an adaptable force, um, I, I think that uh, the evolution of doctrine is crucial, and the emphasis on doctrine is crucial. Um, and when when we look at like let's say in particular to highlight um, uh, AFPD one. Uh, or DP, well, I forgot the exact acronym, uh, but Air Force Doctrinal Publication 1 on um, on Mission Command, right? And that is a 16-page document that just gives you all the bullet points of Klotzwitz. It's essentially the spark notes of MCPD-1. Um, and, and I think as an air power entity, um, and especially like in combat mission support units, uh, we are centralized in decision making, and we are centralized in execution as well, uh, which I think inhibits our our flexibility, which is probably one of the most important attributes to maintaining tempo in the battle space, right? Um, and if we aren't sharing our doctrine, and and doctrine is there to for everyone to be on the same page, but no one is turning the page of that doctrine. Then that's a problem, right? Um, and and the emphasis, as you said, on on TTPs it continues to attribute to our focus on the technical nature of our job versus 
the enhancement of strategic thinking, um, which has been popularly cited across many historians. I think um, in General Zinni's book, he highlights that very clearly, like, hey, like there there are strategy documents, there are there's doctrine all over the place, but rarely does it ever interconnect to be something that, and I, I don't want to use another buzzword here, but synergistic to um, uh, to advance our overarching national security strategy, right? And I, I think those are all, um, you know, everything that you just said was was resonating with me, and all these dots are connecting. Not to use another buzzword. It's hard. We're just we speak a different <laughs> language, even if we don't even realize it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, just to take a, a, a dive back into history, um, uh, when I, I was had a conversation with David Maxwell, and he was telling me that if you read Klotzwitz or if and Sun Tzu, that can inform you to make any that that can take you down the intellectual process to solve any national security problem in the future. Um, and, and I, I find that, um, that tidbit and that that advice uh just just so poignant right um uh, just because it's, i mean we're talking about words that are written on pages hundreds of years ago um that are still relevant today um and i think just taking students down uh the pages of history um so they're able to to write the future is just so so crucial yeah, and I think what I was trying to say earlier, and I thought of it now in terms of an onion, is that when you first read any theorist, you're just trying to peel back the initial skin and mm. understand, okay, what are their basic ideas? And reading someone like Clausewitz, that's really, really, really hard. But then once you do that, another another onion skin needs to be sort of, okay, well, what's the context in which they're writing? Because that helps you understand, okay, well, what actually are they saying? And then you have to keep digging and digging, okay, well, then, well, people have read and understood the person differently. So which person do I think is, is more correct and why? Um, and so even someone like Sun Tzu, who seems to be kind of cookie cutter uh, or fortune cookie military theory, there are people that come out and and say that we're totally misreading him in the West and we can, we have no idea what we're doing and all we're doing is teaching these ideas badly. John Sullivan is actually um, a good example of that if you want to check him out in the strategy bridge if you're not familiar with him. So that's one of those problems with with knowledge is that you know, it's really very, very, very subjective. And it's, again, this this challenge of providing education to, I hate the word, but it just comes to mind anyway, to the warfighter um, with how do we give you that that depth to, to use it correctly? And it's a, a scary, scary prospect. No, I think it's really uh, important that you're talking about the the top down change, the bottom up change, and that isn't enough connective tissue to make change work. There has to be some organization in place that can see the process through. And so, again, that may explain the, the why we feel a little bit like chickens without our our heads running around because the the you can sort of tell people to change, 
but it doesn't work that easily. And especially again, when we're struggling for resources, you have to make tough changes. And that's why I would rather have the strategic reasoning, the ideas out there, the questions to help illuminate always what, what problems are we trying to solve? And then how does this new tool help solve that problem? To what extent does it help solve the problem? Is it the best tool? And it all has to be thought of together and not just sort of, you know, pick pick and choose at the Golden Corral buffet. Yeah, I, I love how you highlight that. And uh, just to bring up, we talked about helicopters earlier in the conversation, air mobility. And uh, not to keep on talking about uh, adaptation under fire, but uh, in my recent conversation, we mentioned that or, or Dr. Bensahal mentioned that they recommended a change. Um, well, they brought up a recommendation based off of what's happening in the war in Ukraine, and they are doubting the efficacy of, uh, or the uh, capability rather, of air mobility in a future fight. And, like, of course, that's going to make some people's heads explode, right? Like, hey, what, what do you mean? Like, this is our primary mechanism to, you know, get get troops, you know, into combat, right? Um, it's a, a key element of air power, but it might not be a viable option in the future. Um, you know, same thing as we look at, you know, we'll force design with tanks, right? Hey, you know, we want to be more agile and just giving out that strategic reasoning. And then to refer back to, we were talking about A-10s a little bit, um, just because there's a cult-like following, hey, I... I love being A-10. I, lo I, I love that airframe. Um, however, is that a viable platform? Does the F-35 provide the same capabilities? You know, most people would say yes, right? Uh, or the experts would say yes. And we should not retain an asset based off of uh, you know, political you know, considerations or just because someone likes a, a BERT, right? <laughs> Or, uh, you know, or, or, or just, yeah, thinks they're cool. So we talked about a lot here. We've talked about adaptation and innovation and your perspective on it. We've talked about the evolution of air power. We've talked about historians. Um, we've talked about reflecting on or the difference between history and heritage. What else would you like to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Well, you mentioned Williamson Murray, and he provides one of my very favorite quotes that I think is so important for military professionals. And I'm going to give you a shortened version of it, but he says, war is an incredibly complex endeavor. It is the most demanding professional profession, excuse me, intellectually and morally. So I'm just going to read that again. The most demanding profession intellectually and morally. The cost of slovenly thinking at every level of war can translate into the deaths of innumerable men and women, most of whom deserve better from their leaders. And so sometimes I think that the Air Force may be the most anti-intellectual of the services. Uh, maybe that's not fair. However, I gave the analogy of an onion in terms of learning and how we need to keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It seems like really the most popular book that is on the reading list of many people is Malcolm Gladwell's The Bomber Mafia. And I'm going to say that that book is great for your first onion layer. Get that skin off, get hooked on air power, 
use it as a gateway drug, and then keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper because Malcolm Gladwell may tell a good story, but he admits that his primary purpose is not to educate, it's to entertain. So find your air power candy of choice that intrigues you and then keep digging deeper and deeper. Again, as Williamson Murray said, the military profession is the most demanding intellectually of any profession. And it is a hard and challenging calling that if things do not work out, as we hope with China, that we will see more, more loss than we have seen since World War II. Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.